Why does God have us here? It's a fundamental question. What is God's purpose for us? What do you think your purpose is? Um, are we to be set apart in the sense in which that video suggested we are? Uh, probably not. Therefore, if you are a Christian, what really are you here for? If you and I can define it, boy, it could really give us focus in our life, and we wouldn't be aimless nor purposeless. And so this is what we'll talk about tonight as we consider just one very meaty verse of Scripture. It's John chapter 15, just verse 16 uh, for tonight. And here's what it says. Here's how it begins. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, uh, before we go deep into the text, uh, let me remind you of the context. It has been the Lord's last supper with his intimate followers. There were 12 to begin with, but one of them, you know him, Judas, would soon betray the Lord, and so he departed from the group. They're down now to the 11. And the Lord loved these 11 remaining disciples, and so he led them now from the upper room where the Last Supper, a Passover meal, took place. And he was going um, downhill for a while to cross the Kidron Valley and then uphill on the Mount of Olives to a particular location called the Garden of Gethsemane. And while he was doing this, knowing he only had a few hours before his public execution, because of his love and concern for his followers whom he would soon leave behind, he was making use of every moment and he was teaching them as they walked. He was leaving them with some final words, part of which was recorded in the verse immediately before this verse. We considered it last week. I'll refresh your memory. The Lord told them, no longer do I call you slaves. Why not? Well, because the slave doesn't know what the master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. That is an overwhelming statement. If you let it take root in your life, to be designated a friend of Master Jesus is probably the greatest promotion and title imaginable to us. What an opportunity to evoke in the hearts of these original followers of Jesus uh, gratitude and worship, but also, I think, the designation he bestowed upon them to be his friends would also provide an opportunity for horrific, prideful arrogance. You see, they might, like us, have been tempted to think, look at us. We are friends of Rabbi Jesus. Unlike you, we have made the right decision. We have chosen of our own volition to uh, be his friends. We are therefore wise beyond measure. We've made this wise decision to follow Master Jesus and to be his friends. You have not. You are lesser people than we are. So in order to deal with this terrible self-centeredness and self 
uh, aggrandizement, I think the Lord intervenes and makes this rather simple yet striking statement. No, no. He says to them, you did not choose me. I chose you. And so he tells them, no, it's not about them having made a wise decision on their own. In fact, I think he tells them, it was he who took the initiative for some mysterious reason. We'll have to ask him one day. It was he who took the initiative in extending himself to them. This he did by his sheer and utter grace. There's no other explanation. And so their new status as friends of King Jesus had nothing to do with any good natural impulse in them. In fact, it had to do with his gracious and merciful nature and initiative in choosing them. They did not choose him. He chose them. You see, they didn't wake up one day and decide this is a good day for us to choose to be a friend of Jesus. No, uh, the opposite was true. He took the initiative in choosing them so that they could be forevermore on friendly terms with him. Now, this was far different than a prevailing custom in the day in which potential students of a rabbi would go about sitting in on the rabbi. There were many of them sitting in on the rabbi's teaching and they would decide, oh, I like what this rabbi had to say. I will make myself one of his students, you see. But the Lord Jesus says, that doesn't work with me. Nobody can, nobody would of their own volition make a decision to follow Rabbi Jesus. He has to take the initiative and stir up something in us in order for us even to respond to him. But wait a minute, some of you may be saying, you're off base, Rothberg. They did choose him. They left behind their fishing nets and at personal sacrifice, they did exercise their free will to choose the Lord Jesus. And I would say to you that's true, but that their decision to do so was prompted by his calling of them. I'm going to stake out my ground and say they wouldn't have had a chance of freely bestowing to him if he didn't first take the initiative in stirring them up. In other words, they could not, they would not call on him if he did not first call upon them to be his own. Now, folks, this introduces the potentially disturbing and divisive doctrine of election. You've heard of it, perhaps. Some are repulsed even by the name of election. This whole thing, this discussion, which we'll have briefly tonight, uh, really has to do with this question. Did God, if you're a Christian... Did God choose you, or did you choose God? Now, I shall give an answer which will offend and displease everyone in the room. The answer to the question, to my mind, is yes. That's the answer. Now, let's pray and go home. So, for instance, let me show you a little bit of what the Scripture says about the first option. God choosing us unto salvation, or I'll use the word some of us don't like, God electing us to salvation. Here it is. I'll just read it to you. Ephesians chapter 1, 
verses 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Get this. Just as he chose us. So before you throw stones, if you say you value scripture, I'm sure you're reading the same verse I am. Just as he chose us in him when before the foundation of the world, I'll make a decision that could get me in trouble here. It looks to me that God's election of those who are going to be saved took place long before you willed to accept Jesus. It looks like it took place before the foundation of the world. In fact, it says in love, he, here's a word that many here hate. I'm just reading it in the Bible here. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. We had nothing to do with it. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And so that's a little something of what the Bible has to say about God choosing us. But lest you divine election people think this is your day, let me also read to you what the Bible says about the fact that, no, we chose Jesus as Savior. Just as a sample, John 1.12, with which you're all familiar, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so you can see, this is just a sampling, as you juxtapose these two seemingly contradictory truths, both are found in Scripture. And so there is division over the doctrine of election uh, as over against what is called the doctrine of free will, but I think there is and can be biblical balance on the subject of election versus free will, because I think in Scripture both doctrines run on parallel tracks. In fact, let me again, as I've done before, offer this illustration of railroad tracks. Can you see it? If you stand in the middle of the rails and look into the distance as they go far beyond where you are, doesn't it give you the impression that they're coming closer together? And so that if they continued to go off into the horizon and past it, you can imagine them even coming together and crisscrossing. Of course, we have no capacity to join together two parallel rails, but imagine these rails merging in the infinite mind of Almighty God. He, you see, has the capacity, to my mind, and I bet yours too, to merge seemingly contradictory truths, both of which are found in Scripture. I cannot reconcile these two seemingly contradictory truths, but God can. I think that's why we worship him and not one another. So ours, to my mind, is simply to accept these parallel truths about the nature of our salvation, though I don't think we can explain it. In fact, when asked how these two irreconcilable, seemingly contradictory truths can be reconciled, Charles Spurgeon, you've heard of him, the great preacher, he said, I never try to reconcile friends. They're both in the Bible. In fact, 
Listen to this. I think we can see both aspects of salvation in back-to-back verses of Scripture. Again, I call your attention to John chapter 1, verse 12, and now the verse after it, verse 13 as well. I'll read it to you. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So according to this text, who is it who became children of God? Well, it's those who chose to believe in Jesus. They chose, that's free will, they chose God. But there's more to that passage. Those who chose God and became his did not become his, the text says, of blood, that means natural birth, nor of the will of the flesh, that means their own volition, nor of the will of man, that means nobody else did it for them, but of God. They're saved by God's doing. So which is it? Did you choose Jesus or did he choose you? I tell you, yes, according to verse 12 and 13. Listen, the free will camp here in the house Love, verse 12, and the divine election camp, love, verse 13, but you can't choose one or the other. Both of these truths, both of these verses mean to me both camps are partly right, but neither one has a corner on the market on all of the truth with reference to salvation So salvation clearly is a matter of personal choice to me. That's verse 12. But salvation is also just as clearly a matter of God doing the saving. That's verse 13. So in representing both truths, it seems to me John uh, avoids what many in our day have not avoided. That is choosing one position as over against the other I choose the third option. Both come into play in a way I cannot fully comprehend. John declared both truths to be operative in the matter of salvation, and he does so, notice, without any attempt to explain how they work together. He doesn't choose to explain what we could not comprehend. So then, do we choose God? Absolutely. We make a real choice to repent of our sins and choose to follow God. But Scripture is just as clear. God chooses us. Now, I know some say our will is so tainted and corrupted by sin, it's in bondage. In fact, Martin Luther wrote a classic book, The Bondage of the Will, which says we cannot respond to God. No, but I don't think the will has been so affected by sin that it is left without the capacity to respond to the gracious offer of God to be saved. Someone says, no, no, that threatens the sovereignty of God. No, the opposite is true. Only a secure and sovereign God would entrust to creaturely beings like us the free will decision to accept or reject him. That's how I see it, and I know Many of you are seeing it differently, and you're entitled, of course, to your your wrong opinion. So, again, as I read Scripture, it doesn't attempt to reconcile these two truths. Instead, it simply presents them side by side. So then, to curb the appetite of these disciples for prideful self-dependence, the Lord tells his followers then, and I think by extension now, you did not choose me, I chose you. 
You didn't walk an aisle one day on your own. You didn't pray a salvation prayer unassisted. You didn't wake up one day and say, you know what? This is a good day for me to be saved. This is a good day for me to find God. No, I think God, on the contrary, would say to us, just as he did to the 11 in John 15, you did not find me. I found you. Are you a Christian? If so, it is because God did a work in you that enabled you to respond to him. So salvation is God's doing from beginning to end. You couldn't nor you wouldn't have responded to Jesus if Jesus had not first responded to you. I know we're getting into deeper theology uh, tonight, but this is what the text invites us to do. How in the world, let me ask you, could you on your own be saved when in fact the scripture says we're dead spiritually? So says Ephesians, for instance, chapter 2, verse 1. And you were not sick. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. And so we have to give credit to Almighty God for our salvation. If we responded to him, it's only because he stirred us up first. The doctrine of election is not something to be avoided. It's in Scripture, and it's a beautiful help to us. I'll tell you why. It's a marvelous antidote for human pride. I'll illustrate. I was looking out of my window the other day. There's a neighbor nearby. I know him a little bit, not well, but I know him enough to know this guy is involved in all kinds of community and patriotic activities. Good stuff. I mean, he's on boards and this and that. He's always doing stuff. And on that particular day, as I looked across to him by his house, I thought, you know all that stuff he's doing? It doesn't matter. It's a waste of time. So what, I was thinking. None of it matters as much as following Christ. And I thought ill of him as I was looking to him, and in my mind I was looking down at him. I was really taking pride in my own salvation, and it was as if I would say to him, hey, look at me, neighbor, I'm saved. I'm invested in what matters for eternity, and you are not. Well, the doctrine of election lays that stinking attitude to rest. It reminds me that I was dead in my transgressions, I did not reach up and out for Jesus. He reached down to me. I only responded because he first reached out to me. So instead of pridefully looking at my neighbor, I ask you, what should I have been doing? Well, I'll tell you, I should have been praying that the same God who convicted me of my lostness and sin would convict and convince my neighbor of the same. And I should, as someone who has been saved by God's grace, instead of looking down with arrogance at this guy, I should be willing to go and share the gospel of Jesus with him so that if God enables him, he could be saved as well. There's something else about the doctrine of election that I like, in which it can do, it can cause me to feel awfully safe and secure in Christ. Listen, if my salvation is merely due to my personal response to him, I'm in trouble. If it depends on me, since I'm not dependable, 
then I'm on shaky ground. But if my salvation is due to his choosing of me, then I am saved and safe forevermore. I remember a day I'll never forget. It was like yesterday, though it was September 5th, 1973, long time ago. I was in the foreign place uh, of Omaha, Nebraska. And I was in a room in a military barracks at a military installation called Offutt Air Force Base. There's the gate. We used to joke, once you get on it, you can't get off it. <laughs> Offutt Air Force Base. That was one of my first assignments when I was in the Air Force. And uh, I had been told there about the Lord Jesus by a friend. He shared with me the gospel of grace. It wasn't entirely new. I had heard before parts of it, and I uh, surely heard of this Jesus before. But on that particular day, in that room, in that place, and at that time, all that I had heard made sense to me inexplicably. It all made sense. It's not that I said I had never heard this before. I had. But somehow on that occasion, do you mind me saying supernaturally and miraculously, it all made sense. I was enabled to believe. And I was enabled to believe not by IQ, not by thorough intellectual investigation of the facts. If I'm honest with you, I was enabled at that moment and in that place to believe by a gracious and merciful work of God in me. Because of his saving touch on that occasion, I was able to reach out and touch him by faith. But his activity preceded mine. Therefore, we have nothing to boast in but the cross of Jesus Christ. If he had not chosen, now I'll use this word which some of you are repulsed by, if he had not elected me to salvation, if he had not touched me, I could not have responded to him. I know this leads to all questions. Does God therefore predestine some to be saved and some to be lost? And the answer is no. That is a subject for another day. And the fact that I don't have answers to all of these very legitimate questions still doesn't tempt me to deny the obvious. I didn't choose Christ. He chose me. And so the text says, John 6.44, for instance, we read about that a million years ago. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him to me. That's not Rothberg, so withhold your emails, please. I just read to you a text of Scripture, which says God is the one who draws people to Jesus. And so I am perfectly, maybe you're not, but I'm perfectly at peace about not being able to explain how divine sovereignty and human free will work together. And I'm also perfectly at peace uh, about accepting that they do, even though I can't explain it. So the Lord Jesus makes this clear. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, what if he reversed these words and instead said, I did not choose you, you chose me. Now, how would that make you feel? 
let me answer for you. It would make you feel like you're in the driver's seat. In fact, it would make you feel like you are the author of your salvation, when in fact, you're not. It would make you feel like you have a right to look down on others who have not put their faith in Jesus just as you did. But when we think about our salvation, and when we realize it is God who enabled it and provided for it, we are moved to great gratitude and humility because he took the role in our salvation. Now, I have to tell you something here. As if I didn't, I can tell by your nonverbals, as if I didn't disturb and trouble many of you, it will get worse now. Everything I've just said to you about the phrase we just read, uh, you did not choose me, but I chose you, it really doesn't have a thing to do with salvation. <laughs> so why did I just take up all your time? Because some people read that verse and take it to have a uh, relevance to salvation. Many people build a whole theology on that phrase. You didn't choose me, I chose you. And then they go off on this theology of predestination, divine election, and all the rest. But I, I want to tell you, you tell me if I'm right, this verse has nothing to do with salvation at all. When it says, I did not choose you, you chose me, I think the Lord is not speaking about salvation. He's speaking about service. How do I come to that conclusion? Well, let's consider some more of this verse. I'll read it to you again. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. Look, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. The choosing here has nothing to do with salvation. I think God did choose us unto salvation. I think I can prove to you the doctrine of election in the Bible, but that's not what's in view here. It's used as a proof text to support that. This is not what this is about. This is about a call to serve, not a call to be saved. And so just as God, in my opinion, is sovereign in the matter of salvation, so too he is sovereign with regard to the matter of commission to service. And so he chose to commission these 11 to the office of apostleship. That's what he said to the 11. Judas is gone. He looked them in the eye. He said, you didn't choose me to this office of apostleship. Nothing to do with your merits. I chose you to serve and to bear fruit. And he who saved us, in my opinion, also commissions us to serve him by going and bearing fruit. So what kind of fruit? This point is also argued. Some say the inner fruit of the presence of God's spirit in us, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness. Others say, no, 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 no. The fruit in view here is not the inner fruit of God's spirit. It's, it's evangelistic fruit. When someone who is inhabited by God's spirit takes the gospel and wins others to Christ, it's that fruit. I think it's another goofball argument in the body of Christ. Which is it? Again, my answer is, it's both. Here's what I mean. What kind of evangelist can you possibly be if the fruit of God's spirit in you is not evident? For instance, if you're sharing the gospel of grace and peace, the gospel of Jesus with someone, but your character in life is inconsistent with it, you please tell me how effective your evangelistic approach is. So my answer to this debate, which fruit is it, inside or outside? Yes, it's absolutely both. And I think the Lord here is saying, I chose you to be fruitful. 
I chose you to make room for my presence in you, to be spirit-filled, to cease quenching the spirit so that with the Holy Spirit's empowerment, you can be more effective as an advertisement for me out there. And so I think the fruit God has chosen us to produce is inner fruit and outer evangelistic fruit. And I think the latter is for sure indicated in this text as we read, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, look, that you would go and bear fruit. Can you see the word go? There is no more vital and clearer great commission word in all of the Bible. So the fruit the Lord has chosen us to produce goes way beyond just being a mature Christian. It has to do with going with the gospel to win souls. God chose us for this purpose. There is a going, you see, in the believer's life that is far different from the aimless wandering of the lost around us. So, with response to the question we began with, what is your purpose as a Christian? It's not to find your way. It's not to try this or that, go here, go there. It's not this mad quest for meaning and purpose. Your purpose, my purpose is defined. Jesus said, I chose you for this purpose, that you should go with intentionality. You should go for the years, for the days, for the moments you have left. You should go and bear evangelistic fruit that remains. Folks, we were chosen to go and tell the world about Christ because the world, apart from our going and telling, will not be able to come to Christ. So even if you hold very strongly to the doctrine of election, most who do are very honorable in saying, but the only way you can identify the elect is through the sharing of the gospel. So even they, sometimes even more so than the free will camp, burn white hot with evangelism because for them it's like going out on a treasure hunt. They know God already has done a work of preparation in people's lives and the sharing of the gospel is what smokes it out. Some people wrongly say, those who hold to this Calvinist perspective, there I used the word, are lazy about great commission efforts. I've never met a true Calvinist who's lazy about evangelism. Show me one. I've met on fire Calvinists who, though they believe in predestination, divine election, no, it's only through the sharing of the gospel message that you could even identify the elect. So in the end, both camps arrive at the same point. Go and make disciples of Jesus Christ. So here's the point. The word go tells me we're not to stand still, nor are we to stand apart. We are to go. So are you a student? You're not to get up in the morning thinking you are only a student. You are to get up and to go out to school as a representative of Christ. Are you an employee or an employer? You're not to get up in the morning think you are only an employee or an employer. No, you're supposed to get up and go out to the workplace as a representative of Christ. Are you someone's neighbor? You are not to get up in the morning, think you are only
only a neighbor. No, you're supposed to get up in the morning and go out into that neighborhood and be amongst your neighbors as a representative of Christ. Because God wants each believer in our own way to influence others so that they come to faith in Jesus Christ. This is the fruit he has us here to produce. And as we read further in the text, we find out the exact nature of the fruit the Lord has chosen us to produce. Here it is. And that your fruit should remain. So the Lord has chosen us to produce fruit of an eternal kind. This includes the inner fruit, of course, of his spirit in us, but also the evangelistic fruit of people who are truly saved. This kind of fruit, don't you see, lasts forever. And so the Lord doesn't want us to be here spinning our wheels, using up our time and energy and resources on things that won't last. Listen, I was ordained a million years ago in a Baptist church in New York. And uh, as part of the procedure, I was asked to address the entire congregation and answer the question to them, why am I seeking ordination? And I... I had just visited a museum in the area, kind of an art museum, and I saw a magnificent piece of wood. It was a wood carving. It was of a bird. It was beautiful. I can hold it in my hand, quite detailed, beautiful. And the label alongside of it explained that the artist, the wood carver, uh, invested 12 years of his life to produce this. I didn't want to denigrate the quality of it all and the beauty of it, but I thought to myself, good night, one match can reduce 12 years of this guy's investment to a pile of ashes. And the bird just spoke to me. And uh, what I got was, I don't want to invest 12 minutes of my life on stuff that doesn't matter. And that's what I told that congregation. I want you, if I qualify, to ordain me because I don't want to invest my life in stuff that doesn't matter. I want on a full-time basis to invest my life in producing fruit that remains. The wood bird is going, folks. I don't want to waste time on the wood bird, do you? And so the Lord Jesus says, I spoke to you about my ordination. We had ones ordained here this Sunday. Chuck Davenport, one of our... Uh, great young ministers will be ordained at 9.30. And you may think, well, ordination is a sort of a special qualification for some, but I can show you, no, that every Christian has been ordained by God to go and bear fruit that remains. In fact, the word appointed here in the text, look, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. That's the Greek word for ordained. In other words, we could read, you didn't choose me. I chose you. In fact, I ordained you. I put you into the ministry. I set you apart for a special purpose. And what is it? That you should go and bear fruit. Now, this is the great privilege and responsibility of being born anew and having life left here. But how can we possibly fulfill such a great responsibility? Well, the final part of the verse uh, tells us how. I'll read the entire verse. I chose you, 
And I, I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. So some people take that as a blank check. Whatever I ask of the Father, he's going to give me. Once again, context is everything. That's not what the verse means. Remember, this is in the context of God ordaining us to bear fruit. And we wonder how in the world can we do it? And here the Lord makes this clear statement. He's telling us how we can fulfill the task of bearing fruit that remains is to be devoted to prayer. Now, we're coming to a close here. I know I've been saying a bunch of stuff, but bear with me just another minute or two. There's a man named Ron Hutchcraft, and he uh, spoke of, he speaks of something he refers to as the three open prayer. This has really helped me to know how to pray evangelistically. I commend it to you. The first open is this, Lord, open the door. You see someone, maybe it's that neighbor across the street I spoke of who I'm at present letting down. Maybe I first pray, oh God, open the door. Present an opportunity, in other words. The second open is this, Lord, open his heart. I can't do that, but God can do that. That's the second thing. In other words, before you go and talk to someone about Jesus, why don't you talk to Jesus about that someone? The first open, Lord, open the door. Second open, uh, open his heart. And the third one, this is the one that's scary. Lord, open my mouth. Someone said, if we have a heart for Jesus, why don't we have a mouth for him? Lord, give me the boldness to open my mouth. Open the door. Open that one's heart. Open my mouth. And so my fellow, do you mind me calling you this? ordained ministers of Jesus Christ. It is our life's purpose. This is the reason why we still live here for whatever time we have. It is our life's purpose to invest in the work bequeathed to us by the Lord himself, he who has chosen us to go and bear fruit that remains. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus as your personal Savior, you can unquestionably and confidently declare this. I have been chosen and appointed by my Father God to bear fruit. And don't you agree with me what a privilege this is, to have been chosen by Almighty God for this holy, lofty life's purpose, to be ambassadors and advertisements of the Lord Jesus Christ to a needy world what a privilege. It kind of reminds me of what we live by here, and that is to be, do you mind saying this with me? To be living proof of a loving God to a watching world. Oh, God in heaven, we'll begin to pray now for the open door, opportunities to share the gospel, for open hearts softened up by your Holy Spirit even before we say a word. And thirdly, open mouths to boldly and unashamedly share the gospel with lost people. Oh God, we pray you would empower us from within and use us mightily to do the work you have bequeathed to us. That is to produce fruit and fruit that remains. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.